Good morning, Impact. I'll tell you, it might be good that it's a Memorial Day weekend because it's good to remember, but beyond that, it might be <clears throat> good because this is probably one of the toughest. In fact, I would say that this is what we're going to talk about today going through Luke. We happen to have arrived at a passage that scares more believers, scares more people probably than anything else in the Bible. And some of you are probably thinking, isn't hell in the Bible? Yes. This is scarier than that. has a little something to do with that. And I'm not much of a fire and brimstone pound the pulpit kind of guy. Um, and I won't pound it today. This is scary all on its own. It's not going to need a lot of help. And uh, if you've got your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 11. And as you're turning there, let me give you this <clears throat> little glimmer of hope about this passage. How sad that this should scare so many people when the greatest hope is sort of a jewel that's hidden underneath all this stuff that is falsely scary. It shouldn't be scary at all. It should be a confirmation that you are saved, that you know God. It's a way to really find out, really be sure. But if all you do is look at the trappings of this thing, you're sort of the egg shell and don't crack it open, you'll never get into what um, the part that is really comforting here. So let's see if we can do that. It's a great big challenge. Luke 11... And uh, beginning with verse 14. Before I do that, I want to give you just one verse in there that I want to kind of draw out in there. Uh, King James and I believe the uh, English Standard Version put this the same. It's a bizarre verse. In fact, this story that I'm going to tell you is in three of the Gospels. This part of it here uh, is only in Luke. Jesus responds to these critics that are always dogging him, the Pharisees and the people that just never gave him a chance and, and never saw the obvious. He responds to them because this time he's cast out yet another demon, and he probably cast out thousands of demons. And he did it this time, and it's obvious that he did a miracle, but they're, they're denying it again. In fact, they're, they're giving the worst possible explanation for it. They said, he didn't do it by God, he did it by the devil. So he looks at it, he says, but if I cast out demons with the finger of God, he said, I don't do it uh, as a devil. Why would the devil cast out the devil? He goes, but there's another alternative here. It could be that I'm doing this as God. And if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's that little phrase in there, the finger of God, I mean, which has so many um, beautiful connotations, the finger of God against Satan. Sometimes we look at Satan, we look at God, and I don't know why. Maybe it's because of our limited uh, intelligence as mere human beings. God says his ways are much higher than ours. So we look at, somehow we look at God and Satan. We think it's, you know, that some great preachers and prophets come along. They're sort of the Luke Skywalkers and the Anakins of life. But really it's Satan and God and it's the dark side and the light and the force and it's equal and it ebbs and flows and it goes back and forth, but it is not equal. God and Satan are not locked in this intergalactic battle where we don't know who's going to win. Right here it says, if I have done this last miracle with the finger of God. Did you catch that? It's kind of this. Bink. If I just flick them out of the way with the mere finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. I don't have to use a lot. It's not an equal battle. I don't even have to use the finger of God. I just think about it and they're gone. And it raises another question that you all think I'm weird about. But you already think that, so let's just go with it, right? Here it is. Does God have fingerprints? Some of you go, I didn't get that in that at all. I, I, I mean, I look at that, the finger of God. I'm not, does God have fingerprints? That's what I want to know about this passage. Look at your hands for a moment. I know it's dark in there. Can we crank up the lights for one second so they can look at their hands? Just crank it up real quick. Look at your fingertips. Wow, I can't look at mine now, but they can. <laughs> so look at your fingertips and... Look at your fingerprints in there. 
I mean, I was looking at it today because I was studying this for, and I realized that just at the very, very top of our fingers are these identifying fingerprints that we have. And as you go down the length of your finger, they're gone. They're just regular skin. But in this one little area, he has this intricate design that separates us from every other human being that's ever been born. Isn't that weird? Why do we have those there, those identifying marks? And does God have them? I think at least figuratively we have to say that he does. Let me give you a few facts about fingerprints, whether you want them or not this Memorial Day. Here it comes. Uh, in about 2000 BC, here's where it all starts. Babylonians, actually 2000 years before Christ came, Babylonians actually put fingerprints in soft clay to protect against forgery of imported documents. So this was going on long before Scotland Yard thought of doing it. In ancient China, impressions of fingerprints were used as signatures of those who couldn't write because they knew, well, that had to be his signature because that's unique. So they've known this for a long time. Fingerprints first appeared on a, on a developing baby. You know, I just can't bring myself to say fetus for some reason. I just can't because, you know, the moment of conception for me and I think for God, that's a baby. As a baby is developing, about four months into pregnancy, Listen to what Psalm 139, 13 through 16 says. For you have formed my inward parts. You have covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you. This is David talking. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought on the lowest parts of the earth, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book, they all were written. The days fashioned for me when as yet they were not written. So as far as God's concerned, he could see every little detail about you before there is a you. Isn't that beautiful? Fingerprints were first accepted as valid police procedure in Scotland Yard in 1901. Prior to the use of fingerprints, this I did not know until I studied it this week. This is bizarre. They had no way of really identifying things and there could be problems, so here's what they did. There's a system of identification known as the Bertillian system. The Bertillian system was developed in 1883. I don't know what they did before that. They just said, does that look like the guy who murdered so-and-so? Sure, kill him. Oops, we got the wrong guy. So there was a lot of false imprisonment stuff and false execution. But in France, they used this Bertillian method. And they used the following information as part of the Bertillian method. A, length and breadth of skull. So how wide is your head and how long is it? Length of each foot. Doesn't seem like enough, does it? Size shoe do you wear? Nine and a half. That's him. Kill him. But so does my friend. So do these five people. So, all right. Length of foot. Length of forearm to elbow, or, or, or forearm from the elbow to the middle finger. All right, everybody raise your hand like this. Raise your right hand and repeat after me. Just raise your right hand. Point to your elbow. From here, all the way to here, apparently was unique enough to throw that in there. How random can you get? Did he murder him? I don't know. How long is it from his elbow to the end of his middle finger? And the length of the middle finger by itself, exact size of the ears, okay, that's, this system failed though, many times. The last time it failed, it raised a lot of questions where fingerprints came in. The system failed in 1903 at Leavenworth Penitentiary. There were two men in custody there. Check this out. One named Willie West and the other named William West. They were both committed to Leavenworth in 1903. They're both sent to prison because they both got pointed out as being the criminal and they looked enough alike, they were almost identical in the Bertillian measurements. So 
So as a solution, just send them both to prison for life. Strangely enough, though, they were in no way related. Only their fingerprints could possibly identify one from the other, and then one was set free. Now, why do I share this inter interesting bit of trivia with you? And some of you are going, when does the interesting part start, Pastor Rob? That was it. I was fascinated with that. If you're not, there's something wrong with you. Well, let's see if you can tell, after we read the following passage together, why I share that with you. Stand for the in honor of God's word. And we're going to read this. And I really want you to keep in mind all that fingerprint talk. <clears throat> Beginning with verse 14. Is one of the scariest passages located in three gospels in all of the Bible. Here we go. Now Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. Okay, so there was a demon that caused a, a guy to not be able to talk. Probably from birth. He had never spoken. I don't even know if he could make sounds. But Jesus cast the demon out. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. And that's a powerful word there. Some of your translations probably say amazed, but basically this is so far beyond any kind of awesome dude. It's not just that. It's complete, being completely flabbergasted. Have you ever been so amazed you couldn't speak? You didn't know what to say. You didn't even think it was a trick. You just, I just saw a miracle. It's that kind of a thing. But, interestingly enough, some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebub, which is... Beelzebul, another name for Satan, the prince of demons. Uh, while others, to test him, here's another group, kept seeking from him another sign from heaven. But he, knowing all their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. It's laid to waste. And a divided house falls. So if Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? I mean, you can just hear Jesus saying, do you realize how dumb it is what you're saying? It doesn't work. It can't work. It's never worked. For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Because some of the Pharisees' sons were actually casting out demons. Therefore, they'll be your judges. But, it is by the, but if it is by the finger of God, there we are, that I cast out demons, if it's by the very identifying, obvious, provable fact of God that I'm doing it, well, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he is attacks him and overcomes him, takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his goods and spoil. Whoever's not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. You can be seated. <clears throat> now, I told you before, and if you want to kind of buzz back and forth, I wouldn't recommend it in this, but later I would check it out. This is mentioned in Matthew 12 as well as Mark chapter 3. And there are some common threads, but in each of these, Luke 11, Mark 3, Matthew 12, there are some extra facts added, so we get even more details. But there are some common threads, and one of those common threads I want to draw your attention to is that no one ever, in this one, but ever, had simply attempted to deny that a miracle took place. And you might be looking at that and going, that's a common thread. <laughs> Thank you, Pastor. I'll write that common thread down when I wake up. Why is that important, Pastor, that nobody denied it? Well, let me tell you what's in Matthew first. In Matthew, we learned that this man was not only mute, but he was also blind. Miracle's getting better now, huh? Couldn't see it all, couldn't talk. Both are happening. In Mark, we simply hear that Jesus was casting out demons, you know, as a whole group. He had been doing this over and over and over again. Then he came to this guy. So it's almost building and building and building. Obvious, obvious, obvious. Here's another one. Everybody's getting in a, in a tizzy about this. Everyone's amazed. Tens of thousands are following him. And this group of religious leaders goes, stop, it's not God. 
So let's follow it so far, okay? You got him casting out demons. You got him casting out a mute demon. You got him casting out a demon who caused muteness and blindness. It's all the same thing. And there are different reactions to Jesus's miracles. Let's get these because they're still alive today. When we're confronted with Jesus, it is amazement, gratitude, anger, fear, surprise, different reactions. It's what you do with those reactions that determines everything about where you're going to spend eternity. The question is, what will you do with Jesus? After the miracles were done, there's one reaction, though, that you never see. In fact, you never see this reaction I'm going to talk about in the whole New Testament. You never, ever see it. You never see Jesus do a miracle and anyone step forward and go, hang on one second, I'd like to point out that nothing happened. I'd like to point out there was no miracle. I'd like to point out that he has a little microphone in his ear and somebody was telling him, nobody ever did that. Now, if people are trying to expose a, a charlatan, which is different than a charlatan I learned early when I moved here. Do not call it the same thing. But if somebody is, is trying to expose somebody who's just a charlatan and a fake, they're going to look for those things. And you can almost feel it in the spirit. No one ever did that with Jesus. Beyond the Bible, with extra biblical literature and historical literature and Josephus and all, nobody ever denied the miracles. He was known as a miracle worker. Now, why is that a big deal? And by the way, I think it's huge. I think it's a huge deal because it's a deal breaker. Denial, if you can prove it, is a debate ender. Point out the trickery and then there's no use being afraid. There's no point being amazed or thankful or fearful or angry. Why? Because nothing happened. Nothing to see here, folks. We can all go home. Found the trick, found the microphone, nothing happened. That never happened in the whole New Testament. And we don't even have all the miracles. John said if all the things that Jesus did that were miraculous were recorded, that all the volumes they knew in the largest library couldn't contain them. So he did a whole lot more than this. No one ever denied him. And here's why. You might want to write this down. It's because something undeniable always happens when Jesus is around. Something undeniable always happens when Jesus is around. You will never encounter Jesus and walk away unchanged. It's impossible. You will never truly encounter Jesus and be unaffected. It's impossible. No one ever came to the conclusion that it was just someone who looked like Jesus. No one ever came to the conclusion that it was somebody that, hey, we may, somebody with similar size ears. If you look at the width of the skull and the length of it, or he wears a size 10 shoe, sandal, whatever, it's not Jesus. Same color hair, same color eyes. I don't think it's him. There's some other guy posing. You didn't hear that. It never happened. Why? Because he was doing this everywhere and his fingerprint, the fingerprint of God, was undeniable. The fingerprint of God was undeniable. So if the reaction of denial were feasible at all, you better bet at least his enemies would use it. Right? Am I right? Are you awake? If you wanted to prove me wrong, and I was just eating your lunch and everything, I was ruining your life, and I was doing these miracles, and crowds were following me, and, and, and I was just destroying you, and you found out, oh, he's, he's a fraud. Look what he did. I, I just found the trick. Wouldn't you go for that? you got to be with me on this. Wouldn't you go for that and go, I can end this whole thing, thank goodness, before he takes too many people astray. Listen, before Jim Jones gets them to drink, 900 people to drink Kool-Aid that kills them, I just found something out. Let me see if I can stop this. Before Waco is burned down and this wacko takes husbands, wives, and children and steals families and has them follow him, I just found something out about his life that proves he's false. Wouldn't you expose that? 
Of course you would, because you want to stop something that isn't real. But you couldn't do this with Jesus. It wasn't available as an option. There was too much proof. It was too obvious. The miracles were just that, miraculous. So even the enemies were seething, and they reacted, but they never reacted by going, oh, wait a minute. I think I've seen that before. I saw that in Vegas. There was this one time when David Copperfield was doing this one trick. It's the same trick. It looks, wouldn't you do that? Wouldn't you do that? Sure you would. But they didn't. And that's huge. In fact, watch this. I want you to know this. The complete absence of miraculous denial throughout the entire New Testament is further proof that Jesus was exactly and is exactly who he said he is. It's not a proof that's often used, but I think it should be. The complete absence of any kind of denial of the miraculous is further proof, as though there wasn't enough. There's tons of proof, but it's further proof. But this did not stop, and this is important today. Here's where the fear kind of comes in. But this did not stop a lot of folks back then and today from coming to wrong conclusions about Jesus anyway. And that's what's amazing. Jesus did these undeniable miracles. No one denied him. And then he presented himself and what he came to do. And people said, no, I don't think so. No, I don't want that. No, I don't think you're really him. No, you couldn't be. So he'd lay out the proof and they'd still deny, get angry, or walk away. Relatively few embraced him. It's illogical. It's not even smart to walk away from Jesus. So what do we know thus far from Dr. Luke? Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, is a doctor. He's a Gentile. We know this, and he tends to record these these types of things, these physical observances. He says, we know this from Luke, Jesus has done yet another undeniable miracle in front of the masses. He just keeps recording it. Here's another one, undeniable, undeniable, no. Not everyone reacted with faith and surrender to Jesus. He wanted to make that plain. And in fact, he made it very, very plain in this passage that most reacted to Jesus negatively. Negatively. You know, one of my favorite passages is Jesus goes across the Sea of Galilee and he comes to the, uh, this one region where there's been a, a dangerous demon-possessed person. In fact, when Jesus, he falls before his feet at Jesus, he, this is a guy who's been living in the tombs, in the graveyard. People come to get him and he throws them off. You know, 10 men can come and he's, his strength is incredible. They chain him up, he breaks chains. But he kneels before Jesus, knowing that he's the son of God. And Jesus says, what is your name? And some of you know this one. He says, we are legion. In other words, there's a lot of demons in me. And you look at that, and Jesus casts the demon out, the demons, the legion of demons, and they go into an entire herd of pigs, and the whole herd of pigs goes over the cliffside and into the ocean and drowns. There's all these dramatic things happening. And the town doesn't get all that amazed or that worked up. I mean, they get amazed, and they're, and they're petrified. But this guy who's demon-possessed, living in the tombs for years, doesn't bother them enough to do anything about it really big. An entire herd of pigs going over the, uh, the cliff and into the sea, they don't do that much about that. But when Jesus casts a demon out and that man is later sitting down, cleaned up, and in his right mind, that scared him to death. Read it. What scared them? That this formerly uncontrollable guy was completely in his right mind and at peace. They asked Jesus to leave. Because of that, how could somebody calm everything down that was such chaos? Isn't that a little bit upside down to let that bother you? Shouldn't the other stuff bother you? Instead, the guy who brought good, the guy who brought peace, the the guy who brought calm, who cast out a legion of demons, scared them. 
He's upsetting the balance. You need to go, Jesus. It's really that same attitude right here. You need to go. There's something scary about you. So I want to take a look at these reactions because they're still alive today. And today you need to examine your heart and see if you're in here. Because there's only one reaction to Jesus that counts, that matters. First, there's the crowd in general. <clears throat> and the crowd in general represents most people. And how do most people react when Jesus has truly been present? They are amazed. And the people marveled. The NIV says the crowd was amazed. They were all amazed. It's a different type of reaction than we might get, like I said, in Vegas if David Copperfield, the magician, is doing something. In fact, you remember when David Copperfield used to be on TV and bigger and bigger things would disappear? You guys ever see those things? If you're over 30, you've seen it. Raise your hand if you're over 30. All right, that's the same amount of hands that should have been up for you've seen it then. Do you remember his last big one before he himself apparently disappeared for unpopularity? Because I haven't seen him in years. His career has now been made to go away. But remember when he made the Statue of Liberty disappear? You guys remember that one? Any of you ever been to the Statue of Liberty? Yeah. Well, you can't go now. It's gone. He made it disappear. No, he's on TV and they put this big old thing over. There's helicopters and everything. It's national thing. And they removed it and it's gone. The helicopters are flying around. They can't see it. It looked pretty amazing. But listen, I've never met anyone who said, listen, we need to go next week. Uh, I got some time off. We need to go up to Liberty Island because I heard the Statue of Liberty is not there or it's been removed. I want to see if there's any damage on the ground. Any... Nobody investigated that. Nobody went up there. Nobody had him arrested for stealing the Statue of Liberty, even though he put it back because you really shouldn't do that. People just kind of did this. That, that's good. Why? Because you're preconditioned and you go in there to know this is a trickster. This is an illusionist. He can make things appear to happen that aren't really happening, right? But we know the Statue of Liberty is there. In fact, we know it never left. It looks like it left. How is he making our eyes feel like we're, we're not seeing something that, that's obviously there? How's he doing this? Neat trick. Wow, thanks. Do it again. But that's different. This word here means the crowd didn't look at it as a trick. They had no explanation. They couldn't do anything. They knew this mute guy, this formerly blind guy. They'd seen him from birth. Nobody's faking that for 30 or 40 years, and yet he is completely different, completely made whole. That scares people. So they're all amazed, and that's the first category. Miracles are different than tricks. So the starting point is everyone marveling at an undeniable medical Miracle. From there, the people branch out into several different directions, and here's where it gets a little odd. Verse 15, but some of them, so here's the first breakaway group and the second category. Some of them said, by the devil, the prince of demons, he's casting out demons. So the second category, the first breakaway group, are what I call, you write this down, the predetermined. I call this group the predetermined. How they got this way is anybody's guess, because there's a lot of things in life that can get you that way. In fact, if I ask for a show of hands and I'm not dumb enough to do this one, who's Republican, who's Democrat, I won't finish the message because you guys will start looking at each other different. You're one of those. You think that way. How do you think that way? You're conservative. You're liberal. How do you think that way? Well, if we can get so ingrained in that, who knows how we got there, that somebody can present an argument to us on the other side from where we're at. It can be a good argument, a perfect one, a logical one, and we aren't moving. Some of you going, yeah, I've met people like that. You're probably one of them. We're all like that to some degree. There are things that if we don't take a careful look, we realize there's no logical reason. I just ain't moving. I'm not budging on this. Could have been a rough upbringing. 
uh, where they learned, listen, everything in life's too good to be true. There's no free lunches. It might have been indoctrination from parents or religious leaders who pounded into their little boys or girls' frontal lobes that religion and life and God looks like this. He never looks any different. Now, if you want to see this, think about countries like Iran. Think about Afghanistan. Think about countries where if you grow up there, well, if you grow up in Iran, religious-wise, what do you have a 99% chance of being? You could say, I don't think there's anybody who's going to get you say it. You're probably going to be Muslim. Is that because at five years old you went, Mom, Dad, I've thought things through. Thanks for letting me read all about Christianity and Confucius and Buddha and Muhammad and all. I've come to the conclusion that it's, um, this is going to shock you. For me, it's Muhammad. For me, it's going to be Islam. And I know that, no, they don't, even, they don't even think about it. They're just raised, indoctrinated, put this, and that's why most of the country, in fact, threatened, frightened. So I don't know how these things get there, but for whatever reason, here's a group. There's a preconceived notion of what the Messiah will look like and what he's got to be, and they've put a box in their thinking, and so here the Son of God stands before them, and they can't get it. They're the predetermined group. It's a very dangerous group. These people that no amount of proof in the world could ever change their minds. Their minds are made up. This is probably not the first, definitely not the first miracle that almost everyone in that crowd saw. But no matter how incredible and how undeniable the works of God are, get this. Why are they predetermined on Jesus? Because they hate him. The religious leaders hate him. He's not what they expected. And the people they follow, the Pharisees, the scribes, the priests, the Herodians, the zealots, have all taught him. He needs to look like this. This guy who's come along recently, Jesus, though he's teaching and doing some good things, he doesn't look like this. There's not much of a choice here. He's bad. He is, but he seems good. No. But, but does he look like this? No. Then he's bad. But he, don't say but. So he's bad? Okay. But he's bad. I know, it hurts all of us. We wish it was the Messiah. But it's not. Because he doesn't look like this. So they just said he's bad. And they began hating him. Because he keeps doing miracles and keeps winning the, the, the hearts of the people. And he's not on their team. So it's incredibly illogical. But they're probably not going to change. They hate him too much to see who he really is. So they will always respond to the, and Write this down. This is very, very good and very, very important. This group, unless God doesn't work in their heart, will always respond to the miraculous with something scandalous. This group will always respond to the miraculous with something scandalous. You know, that's a miracle. Nobody would deny that. But here's what's really going on there, and it's bad. But I don't see any... But what he did was so good. He helped this guy who was suffering. Doesn't, it looks good. Underneath it all, it's bad. They'll always respond to something miraculous with something scandalous. Listen, if you're a predeterminist, what would it take to un unthaw the block of ice around your feet, making you face that. What would it take to melt that so that you can be freed up and turn and face Jesus? This morning, you better determine that. Because if you're going in the wrong direction, away from the only one that can save you, Jesus is the, is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man, John 14, 6 says, comes to the Father except through him. There's no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved but Jesus' name. So if you're going away from Jesus... You're going straight to hell and away from God. So this is kind of important, right? Scary stuff here. There's another group, the third group. This is what I call the testers. 
These are the testers. And this is probably a bigger group today. I see this all the time. It's a pretty big cop-out group. Look at verse 16. But others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. And some of your translations say others kept testing him, asking for another sign and another sign. And you see this periodically as you go through the Gospels. A lot of times the religious leaders would say, if you would just do a sign, please understand this. Jesus did a lot of signs over and over, thousands of signs. So if somebody's saying this, the question has to be risen, uh, one's enough enough. No one's ever denied these signs, so exactly what would you like to see for you to believe? Now, at first glance, this group seems to have some hope, right? Listen, I just want to see a sign. I'm almost there. I'm at an eight. I could reach a 10 if you would make me float in the air and spin around three times and could you, okay. What if Jesus did that? Once they got back to their place, they go, well, I, I'm almost, I think I'm a nine. Could you do something? And he knows their hearts and he knows that, you know what, I'm not playing this game. This will just go on and on and on. So after all, the inference from their request is that they might actually come to faith in Christ. If he could just do a miracle good enough to, you know, to put him over the top, just, just a little push, just put me over the top. But what have we already learned about the miracles of Jesus? What have we already learned? No one from any group anywhere ever denied them. So why do you need another undeniable miracle over the top of the last 5,000 undeniable miracles? And what does logic say about this group? That there's no magic number. There's a different problem. You're not going to believe Like our own fingerprints, the miracles Jesus did, their unexplainable, supernatural nature proved irrefutably that something out of the natural had occurred, that something impossible, every time he did a miracle, had happened over and over and over and over again before thousands and thousands of witnesses. That means that this was true about the first miracle Jesus ever performed. You cannot turn water into real wine. And it's the same as the 10,000 miracles he did after it. They're all the same. They're miracles. They're undeniable. So listen, if you're in this group, if you're a tester, let me ask you something. What's your magic number? You better figure that out. If you're a tester, what's your magic number? Have you ever thought about that? Maybe you are a skeptic. Maybe you're going, I, you know, I, I think that's me. I, I just need a little bit more. Then let me just stop you a moment and say, okay, settle that. What's a little bit more? I'd like to see five more miracles. Are you sure? Yes, five. Five would do it. How do you know? What have you seen God do in your life already? When you walk outside and you look at the sky and the trees, if you go to the mountains, if you go to the beach and you see creation, isn't that somewhat impressive? When you start studying science and you realize that where our planet Earth is in relation to the sun, if it moved just a little bit, we're all dead. When you look at the human body and you realize that if anything was off a little bit, we couldn't survive. And the intricacies of the human mind that no computer, no matter how big and how fast it is, can even compete with the dumbest human mind. Don't you kind of think that's enough? So I would challenge you as a tester to lay aside the numbers. That's a foolish game. And testers test God all the way to the end. It's a dangerous path.
remember at Young Life Camp when I was a teenager, they had this thing where you'd go out and you'd, you'd climb this, uh, it's about 30 feet tall. It was a telephone pole that they got and they put it in the ground. Maybe some of you did this and they had these little handles and you climb it up and they put these harnesses on you. And you get to the top and your legs are just shaking and you, you, you only have room to put your feet completely together on this and you're balancing and you're 30 feet up but straight down. And you look and you go, what is the point of this? There's about seven or eight feet way out in front of you and a little bit higher is just a little flimsy looking trapeze bar. <laughs> and for some reason, when you get really close to those things, they don't look better supporting than they do from the ground. They look worse. It's just this little thing in the wind just kind of... And the point was at Young Life to let go and just jump out there and grab it and hang, which is awesome unless you miss. If you miss, then you get to free fall for a while until you're dead. No, you have these cables, right? You have these cables. They look good. They look impressive. You pull on them. They seem to hold. But this is life and death you're talking about. So you know what most people did at Young Lives? And I was included. There'd be a mob at the bottom, and there'd always be somebody who'd, who'd whip right up there and show you how it's done. Of course, that's the person that works there and has done it for 15 summers in a row. And they know what they're doing. Then there's the hot shots that do little tricks and stuff. And then you see your friends. And the ones with real big faith, they see a couple of things like this, and they're excited about it, and they go, I want to do this, right? And they do it, and they climb up, and you see your friend do it. Now your faith has grown a little bit, hasn't it? And then you, you want to do it. But there's always the one person that'll watch over and over and over again. They made it. They made it. It's 8 o'clock in the morning. They're with the first shift. They made it. They made it. Sun's going down. 10 hours later, they made it. They made it. You want to try? No. The next one won't make it. We can put you on cables. They hold. In fact, we could have you, as you're climbing, we can sort of pull on the cable and just suspend. You'll see that you're not going anywhere. In fact, if you jump and miss, you will fall about six inches. Yeah! They just hang there. And then there is the lowering of shame. I mean, you just go down, I, I, I missed, I didn't jump hard enough. So it, it's embarrassing. So you go back up and you try. But listen, some of the guys were literally going out there and, and I worked as an area director and after a while, after you really believe, we would do it blindfolded. We'd get up there and then we'd put a blindfold on and we would just kind of just, we would remember how far out it was and it was a blast. And then one big thing was to jump out there and turn around and try to grab it backwards. That was a blast. There were guys that went out there sort of like they were Michael Jordan and tried to do a 360 and then grab it. Because it doesn't matter if you miss, you're held by the cable. Except there were always those that would be there. And there were people that went back to camp the next year and saw this and would never try it. Never, ever try it. Because they were convinced that if they ever did it, that would be the one time that it wouldn't work. And that's sad because there was a lot of fun and a lot of adventure as you got your faith increased. Like I said, you spin around or catch it backwards or do a blindfold. It was a lot of fun. They never got to experience that. And in the Christian life, they'll never get to experience the abundant life and the beauty of walking hand in hand and walking intimately with a Savior because they won't take that step because they're testers and they're waiting. I will. I need to see 500 people jump up and grab that bar, jump way out. Okay, well, you've been there three summers. I think you've seen 600. 
yeah, I, th I thought that would work, but I'm, I'm thinking before I graduate, summer number four. Did you know the longer you do that, the less likely it is you're ever going to do that. Pretty soon, you're just going to hunker down and you may never, ever make that climb. So being a tester is very dangerous. The fourth group is identified by Jesus himself, verse 17. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Rob Singleton, paraphrase here. Can I do that? Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, why are you thinking these thoughts? Why are you saying these illogical things? We're not talking about shoe size. We're not measuring ears or the distance between my elbow and the end of my finger. We're talking about the fingerprint of God Almighty here. The conclusions you are coming to are foolish and the result of your own sinful desire and preconceived notions. To, and you want to live your life apart from God. It hasn't changed from the garden. I've given you so much and yet you want the one thing you can't have. You want to rebel. You want to pull that sin. This is, this is fill in the blank with one answer, I think Jesus is saying. And you want to play multiple choice where all the answers are wrong. There's only one correct answer, and most of you aren't getting it. Not that it'll do any good, but let me illustrate how ridiculous every response but the godly one actually is. First, Jesus illustrates this. It's the Satan versus Satan philosophy. And this is the crazy notion. As he goes on, uh, he says, every kingdom divided against itself is a waste. It can't stand. And if Satan is, is attacking Satan, then he's attacking himself. This is illogical. It's kind of like the movie Fight Club. You ever see that? I mean, that's a, you guys all want to admit to that one. Interesting. Anybody ever see Fight Club? Anybody ever see or hear that somebody else saw Fight Club? There we go. Yeah, okay. So you know it's out there, but sinners watch it, not you. So Fight Club is, is a pretty interesting movie I've heard from Russ Snapper. That, uh, and you got this guy who's kind of a nerd and he can't really get through life and it's kind of a stick it to the man kind of a movie. But anyway, he can't break out of his personality. And then, and then Brad Pitt comes along and he's this guy that teaches him to break out and fight. And you're watching this and it's kind of confusing where this is going. But in the end, it gets, it's got kind of a trick in it. And what you really realize is they're the same person. It's this guy who's got dueling personalities. And so there's a group that goes to Jesus and says, I know, I know what it is. Satan's doing some kind of trick here. It's the fight club thing. It's the same guy. He's making it look like that because he's trying to set some up. This is not fight club. And the stakes are so much higher. And Jesus goes on to explain how nuts that is. How could a divided house stay together? Isn't divided the opposite of whole? Isn't disunity the opposite of unity? If Satan's fighting Satan, then he's fighting himself. You're not even logical. But more than that, they were also hypocritical. Matthew, if you go to check this out in Matthew, it says, and it also says here, but a little bit more succinctly in Matthew, it says, and Matthew 12, 27, 28 says, and if I do cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Then you got a good point. Because remember, the Pharisees were raising, they, they, everybody believed in demons. And they were casting them out, exercising demons. Their sons were doing it. The Pharisees were doing it. And it was working. So he said, uh, based on that logic, if it's Satan casting out Satan, who are your sons doing it by? Would they be little messiahs or gods or would they be the same thing? And it's just silent. Their argument is destroyed. 
Apparently the Pharisees endorsed certain exorcists who went throughout the region casting out devils. And Jesus said, if you indict me on that dumb logic, because I have freed a man of demonic power, then, then what about those who you have endorsed that free people of demonic power? If, on the other hand, the more obvious is true, that I cast out demons by the Spirit of my God, my Father, you must acknowledge that the kingdom of God is represented in me and that it's standing before you right now. Checkmate. Since your thing is illogical and can't possibly be true, there's only one other alternative, that I am doing this by the power of God, that I'm the Son of God, and the kingdom of God is right before you now. Make a choice. That's why this passage is so scary. For many people, these encounters right here bring up a sin that is known as the unpardonable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. For some people in this crowd right here, this is the last sin they ever committed. This sealed their fate in hell. That's why it's such a scary passage. Let's review. A man has been freed of a demon. The people are amazed. All have seen an undeniable miracle. The Pharisees immediately conclude that it was Satan behind the whole thing. Others want more proof. Some don't know what to think. Isn't it interesting that Jesus only addresses one group? There's a lot of groups represented. He only addresses one group. The ones who have either committed the unpardonable sin or are getting pretty close. The Pharisees. Jesus says, you're speaking illogically. I can forgive that. You're acting hypocritically and jeopardizing your souls eternally. Do you know how close you are to the abyss? Now the Bible's very clear, and I wanna comfort you here today. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid for every sin, past, present, and future, of everyone. His death and resurrection, he paid the price. It was sufficient for all mankind, but it is only efficient for those who put their trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So the level of penalty that only Jesus could pay as a sinless God-man was paid in full. In order to acquire it, to have it, you have to reach out for Jesus. Who draws you to reach out for Jesus? Whose job is it to woo your heart so that you come to Jesus? The Holy Spirit. It is the job of the Holy Spirit. Who are you blaspheming when you blaspheme the Holy Spirit? That's not a trick question. The Holy Spirit. So try to look at it this way. It's like sitting on a branch, climbing a tree, sitting on a branch, enjoying the view. It's a large branch. And the tree trunk's here and the branch is here and you're sitting there. And then you pull out the saw that you had strapped to your back and you start sawing the branch off. You're sawing the branch that you're sitting on off. That's not really going to work, is it? You're not going to remain in the tree. It's like sawing off the very branch you're sitting on. It can no longer work. If the Holy Spirit draws you and you spit in the face repeatedly of the Holy Spirit, He will pull away and not draw you. And unless God draws you, you can't come to Jesus. That's why this is so dangerous. It's when you come to the wrong conclusion that the reason miracles are happening, that the reason there's beauty in creation, the blind are seeing, lives are being transformed, the mute are speaking, the lame walk, the world is created, or even that 
your heart is beating and you're able to breathe. If you come to the wrong conclusion your whole life with that, and explain these things away as some kind of hypnotism or demonic activity or aliens or whatever, evolution, I don't know. But it's anything other than God. And you begin to blaspheme what the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart when he says, no, it's me, it's Jesus. And you push that and you stiff arm that. The wooing that God does, eventually he pulls back. And there's no more. If you ignore the Spirit's voice in your heart and say, those people at Impact are being brainwashed, I hear. Christians have all drunk the same batch of Kool-Aid for 2,000 years. Those believers are under some kind of delusion. Well, there comes a point where you'll have to say no one too many times to the Holy Spirit. And I don't, I don't, and I don't mean to suggest, I don't know when that is for everybody. But it comes. And that point is when the unpardonable sin has been committed. Now, what does all this mean? It means that the Holy Spirit will no longer speak to your heart. Genesis 6 says, My spirit will not always strive with man. Look up here. You know what that means? He will not always speak to your heart about your need for salvation. I always go on Christmas and Easter. I just happen to be here today, Pastor Rob. Okay. And Memorial Day. And, and today, he's probably speaking. Some of you are probably sitting there going, he is, there's this nudge, something's wrong. Don't count on that always being there. If you keep pushing him away, the voice will get quieter and quieter until you can't hear it anymore. Why is this worse than any other sin? It's not worse. It's that it closes the door. Like I said, it's like sawing off the branch you're sitting on. It's not that you can curse Jesus or curse God or stiff arm them and that doesn't matter. It's that when you curse the one who draws, there's no drawing. So I told you it'd be scary. And that's not the point of this. And why is it included in three gospels? Certainly not just to scare people so Jesus can go boo and you jump and that's fun. I think it's here for this reason. And here's your homework. Two words this week. And I can start right after the service. Examine yourselves. Examine yourselves. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether or not you are truly in the faith. Truly say it. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Is he or not? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. Now, some of you are going, I don't know how to do that, Pastor. Are you going to really end it here? No, I'm going to end it here. How do you test yourself? Three things to clear up this week for you. Number one, it's not a matter of religion, but of relationship. So if you try to test yourself and go, I go to church, I think enough. I believe some basic orthodox things. I'm safe, right? No, it has nothing to do with religion. It has to do with a relationship. Number two, test yourself and, and realize this. It's not a question of theology, but of intimacy. I know a lot of things about the Bible, the study of God. I've been trying to be, doesn't matter. Pharisees were great at that. But do you intimacy, intimately know the God of the Bible? And number three, it's not about knowing Jesus intellectually, but knowing him personally. There's another bar that a lot of people will miss. And that is the, the, they don't miss it by seven or eight feet like in young life. They miss it by an average of 18 inches, which is the distance in the average man's 
anatomy between his brain and his heart. And gang, the Holy Spirit is the one who moves what we see and experience from here to here. And until it is moved here, there's no life. There's no adoption. There's no transformation. So that's my prayer for you. I promise you, you take this three-part test, he'll answer you. See, no one seeks God where God says, no, if you reach out for him, he doesn't back up and go try again, try, no. If you seek him, you will find him if you seek him with all your heart. In fact, I'll be in the back waiting. And if any of you say, I don't think I want to wait. God's pulling on me now. I, I want to pray. In fact, I would ask if I could, uh, my wife, I see Michelle there. Michelle, why don't you come up if you could? And Michelle will be waiting down here in the front. If there's any, you know, young ones, any kids that want to uh, talk or, or, or ladies or anybody. And, and I'm going to go ahead. I'm not going to wait in the back today. I'm going to wait in front because this is too important to just shake a hand and let people go on by. And if you want to get this settled today, I'd be happy to talk with you about this and, and pray with you about this. But if some of you are going, well, I'd like to get it settled today, but there is the matter of lunch. And I need to go and I'm hungry. Wow, you just probably indicated that you're in another group other than the one who truly knows Jesus. Otherwise, you'd never say that. I'd rethink that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these passages. They're not for fear, Lord. They are not to drive us away, but to let us see that you are real and you came to rescue us, Lord, and to bring us home and then raise us up new life in you, Lord, and send us out to help others come home. But none of that starts if we just test you all our lives or we're predetermined to think of another way or we think all roads lead to heaven, Lord. It's you or no one. There's no other name given under heaven by which men can be saved but the name of Jesus. I pray if there's anyone wrestling here today that would come and talk to us and come home to you, Lord Jesus, in your name I pray. Amen.